0: We have been going through the book of Romans and we preach through God's word verse by verse expositorily, and we find ourselves at verses 26 and 27. And as you know, um, if you have read through, through the chapter, read ahead, we are talking about the topic of homosexuality and to a much lesser degree transgenderism. And today, uh, today's message will be tactful, appropriate, and uh, decent, uh, but we will be preaching through what God's Word has to say on these topics, which is of utmost importance and so now these might be some discussions that you would want to continue with your kids or maybe you even wish that you had them with your kids before today but I would say this is there a better place to actually hear about what God's word has to say on these topics than his church and so um, so that's where we're heading and that's where we're going because this day and age we are Undoubtedly bombarded and indoctrinated with what the world has to say on these topics in every avenue of life. And so if this is your first time visiting with us today, welcome. Uh, We hope to see you back here next week. And so uh, now this is not a topic that needs any introduction as we would be able to see that uh, we could look all the way back to Genesis 19 where God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin of homosexuality. And there's no shortage of uh, its themes in our, our current society. It was It is very prevalent. Um, we see aspects of uh, gay rights and uh, civil unions and domestic partnerships and laws and legislation at the state and, and federal level. We, we see aspects of education, cultural plurality as far as tolerance in, in all aspects, whether that be in the workplace, whether that be in the schools, in our own social circles, counseling centers, media, government. Essentially, there isn't a place uh, that we could really uh, find ourselves where it isn't front and center. And as I stated last week, it would be very hard pressed for us to find ourselves at a place where we don't have a friend, a family member, a loved one, a co-worker, or even a classmate that is just in the gay or lesbian lifestyle or in the midst of gender transitioning. And so in this modern-day Corinth, in this dystopian culture of confusion that we find ourselves in, uh, it would be something that we need to regularly navigate through and, and contend with. Because th- to say that it's not something, uh, that would be uh, a gross misunder, uh, understatement as far as things that we have to deal with in our culture today. So really, where we're going uh, is this. is How are we as followers of Christ to take all of these things and, and to take the word of God? And, and to overlay it uh, upon all of these things? And how are we to stand firm in truth? How are we to be on this threshold in a world in which what God's word has to say on these topics will run into direct contradiction as far as what God has already spoken into and as far as what God has already spoken over. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been navigating through some challenging waters through the book of Romans with the wrath of God being the prevailing theme. And we, we talked about these words from Paul that we must come face to face with. Basically, we have addressed this topic of what does it look like when God gives one over to their own sin. And we started in verse 24, we see this descending staircase where God gives them up to their own sin. And basically saying, if you have made the decision to reject me and and to replace me with with idols, with idolatry, I, I will find myself at this place to say, here you go, here you go. And so we see this phrase, God gave them up. And we see in verse 24, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And where we would find this, this would be natural aspects in which mankind steps into sinful behavior with. And then verse 26, we see in our passage today, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And this would be unnatural acts that mankind sinfully steps into. And then we find the, the lowest step on the staircase here in verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind. And so where we find ourselves or individuals here at this place is now that they are participating in these sinful acts and where there is no longer a clear recognition between right and wrong. Uh, the depths of moral unconsciousness has now arrived at the lowest of levels, a, a debased Mine, And this is this obvious regression or progression, if you will, of perversion. And so today, uh, our message is going to be broken down into three parts. First of all, what are these dishonorable passions? What are these unnatural relations uh, that Paul is speaking of here? And then number two... We live in a world, obviously, where there is a large prevalence of LGBT support or participation as far as this present day and age is concerned. And so how are we to make a stand? How are we and what are we to say when this world comes at us and says, you're one of those people, aren't you? You're one of those Christians that that just essentially hate all that I am and stand for. And how are we going to navigate a conversation like that? And moreover, with everything that comes through the pipeline in this world, how are we to be able to have a mind that effectively deciphers and filters everything that we're hearing? And then finally, where do these conversations land? As far as standing firm in truth and yet sharing the gospel. Uh, to a, a world that is in such desperate need of the powerful, transformative, redemptive work of the cross. And so, by all means, <laughs> let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. Lord, we live in a day and age which uh, those that adhere to and uh, ascribe and follow after and hold fast to a 2,000-year-old book of antiquities that many would deem to be nonsensical. But Lord, we know that these are your words. And we recognize you as creator. And because you are creator, you know your creation. You, You know the very hairs on our head. You know the intricacies of our mind and Thought and desires. God, you in your sovereign nature know every single one of our days, they're written in your book as if there were not one of them, according to Psalm 139. Lord, you have a plan and purpose for our life. God, may we humbly submit to what you tell us in these words, these chapters, these, these verses. God, may you uphold us in your righteous hand. And God, we ask these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us, Lord. Bless our time together. Amen. And so we're going to lean back into verses 24 and 25 as well, even though we're going to be preaching through verses 26 and 27. Yes, I got to step into the light here a little bit, so... (laughs) Maybe get some night vision goggles or something next time around. (laughs) So for, um, therefore, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator to maybe some of these topics that advocate for homosexuality or gender transitioning, not only from a secular perspective, uh, but also from within-the-church uh, perspective as well, many that are trying to normalize this and make a, a case for this in our Christian faith. First and foremost, may we be very clear as far as what God's word has to say on these matters. And so so this is really uh, our first point. What are dishonorable passions? What are unnatural relations? And moreover this, who defines them as such? And so again, a a brief review of what we focused on uh, last week. We see man's rejection of the truth. And this truth is now exchanged for a dark, idolatrous, terrible lie. This exchange about the truth about God for a lie. And from this, when God's absolute truth found in his word is put aside, now what takes place is there is a new counterfeit, contrived construct of truth that has now been replaced And so what happens is if I basically create my own truth, my own truth, as in this case, under a framework of my own sinful sexual immorality, then what now I can do, I no longer come under absolute truth found in God's word. I now come under my fabricated truth. And now I am cleared of my conscience. Uh, I I no longer have to look at this uh, area of my life as sin because I have now exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And I come under my own conscience, which is under a new truth. But as we know from Romans 2.15, our conscience bears witness to the work of the law that was written on the heart of every human being. And so we arrived at the fact that we all all mankind is without excuse and general revelation has been revealed to man and for many special revelation the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been revealed as well to many. But we are found without excuse whether special or general revelation. Man does not and cannot take the liberty to establish a new set of ground rules. Man cannot take the liberty to come up with his own terms of engagement or to author a new operating manual. Man does not do that. God does. God does. And this has to be the starting point and the finishing line. This has to be the true north and the plumb line. This has to be the source of absolute truth found in God's word in which we are to ascribe to. We are to come under its authority. We are to adhere to it. We are to ascribe to it. And so now as we will see, even within Christian circles, even within the church, we are finding more and more instances. And it's nothing new under the sun, by the way. Opportunities to twist scripture, to cherry pick specific verses, to moderate and soften passages that are very direct in nature where man would neglect authorial intent, meaning what were the authors of God's word actually trying to convey. Man would neglect original manuscript. Man would neglect the totality of scripture and the full counsel of the word of God in order to make it say is something that he would want it to say in order to justify and make excuses for these areas of sin, specific, specifically sin in this area of sexual deviance. And this is why we must arrive at what does God's word actually have to say on these topics and and be able to read through how this world may twist and do a little bit of a workaround in some of these areas and and really um, try to say and make it say something that it doesn't. And now it's very important that we step into these things because what are we going to say or where are we going to stand? And some of you guys are in the midst of this. Hey, you're that Christian guy, aren't you? You're you're that Mr. Christian guy. Or you're that Mr. or Mrs. Christian gal. What are you going to say when that comes up? And they really contest you on what we believe as far as what God has to say in his word. Whatever it is that we say is important. And if we were to say words about something as far as what God's word has to say along these lines, it's not going to be in the commonplace. You will find yourself in the minority if you say something along these lines. I ascribe to a biblical view on sexuality and recognize homosexuality and gender transitioning as sin. It is a bold statement. You will be maligned, you will be put off. You will be categorized as the closed and narrow-minded, old-fashioned, Bible-thumping, fanatic, or bigot. And I told you last Sunday, I'd love to see you back here this week, but if you can handle the heat. And so, here we go. And so, uh, Martin, if you could just keep the, the slides up because we're going to be doing... Uh, doing a rapid fire as far as what God has to say about his creation. And what does God have to say uh, about his creation? First and foremost, let's start at the beginning, Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He created male and female. He created them. And these are what we would arrive at as absolute terms. God was very particular as far as what he was doing in his order of creation. It states plainly, he created male, he created female. Mankind is binary. It is not non-binary. Gender is not fluid. Being male or female is not a result of a social construct or not a result of social contagion. It is an absolute objective reality. Now, Yes, there will exist to be females that maybe have secondary secondary sexual characteristics that are masculine in nature. There will be males that have secondary sexual characteristics that may be effeminate in nature. But this does not change what God created. God that is the beauty of differences. But what we have to look at is the primary sexual characteristic, which is what is produced, what gametes are produced. Is an egg produced or is a sperm produced? Now, you would say, and the world would say, well, what about those that are born intersex? And with intersex, that would be a formally used scientific term of hermaphroditism. And so now it's very important to understand that this incidence is extremely low, 0.018 of the population. However, what we would see is a a skewed number. You've got to do some digging behind some of these diagnoses. And we would actually see the world would say it's a prevalence of 1.7%. But both of those, either 0.018 or 1.7%, are drastically lower than the overall population that would identify as transgender or gender transitioning. Now moving on to this topic of marriage. It was created and authored by God. Uh, we see civil unions and domestic partnerships, but may we agree that they are just exactly that? May we not say that this is the sacred covenant of marriage that God designed? authored and created. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man, shall, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Moving on to Genesis 19, many would say that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was not the result of homosexuality, but was the result of pride or inhospitality or sexual uh, brutality but if you were to read through Genesis 19 and exegete it appropriately you would not be able to arrive at any other place other than that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of homosexuality Genesis 19:24. then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and then we see moving on to Leviticus, Leviticus 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, an abomination. This is repeated in Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And proponents of homosexual relations would say that, hey, this is Levitical law. This is way back when. We are now under the new covenant. And this would be the case. This would be the case if we saw Christ or one of the apostles specifically lifting adherence to this specific law. But we do not see this in regards to homosexuality. It was assumed and looked upon as sin. Throughout the entire New Testament, and it was never remotely even deemed appropriate. And then finally, we would arrive at Matthew 5:17: that Christ, Christ did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. Now, the sin of homosexuality is again revisited. Specifically looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. Multiple places, Isaiah 3, 9, Old Testament. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. 2 Peter 2, 6, New Testament. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And culminating where Jude calls it out specifically, we see this. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal And finally, we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And yes... We see these sins listed out in 1 Corinthians among many others. And yes, we see the abomination listed in Leviticus listed among many others. But may we not gaslight in regards to this and say, look at all of these other things listed. And by looking at all of these other things listed, we're going to negate what is clearly perceived, which God recognizes according to our verses here in Romans as dishonorable passions And unnatural relations. And throughout some of these verses, you could see uh, what the world or the LGBT would say in regards to these specific scriptures, how they would uh, compile some arguments uh, against. But we have to land at this place. The first of many fallacies. The, The Bible never is for same-sex, monogamous relationships, as many would say, as long as these two individuals are committed to one another. I do not find that in Scripture. And so what this is and what we're going to step into here is all of these misnomers, these fallacies, these blatant twisting of the truth uh, in, in God's word and exchanging them for a lie. What this is, it's called hermeneutical gymnastics with the word hermeneutics being the study of the interpretation of scripture. So what we're going to find if you really navigate through some of these things as we're going to step into, you have to go through some pretty significant wormholes, some aspects to really kind of do a workaround to make scripture say something that it does not say. And we see this not only with the issue of homosexuality, but we see this with a whole litany of sin issues because man We'll go to great lengths to make excuses for, to justify, and validate our own sin nature. And this is very important. This is very important, especially for, for you young people. Because you are in a world, and for some of you guys, you're going to be going off to college next year. And what are we going to say when that, when that conversation comes up? How will we be able to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you according to 1 Peter 3.15? Will we have a response or will we walk away saying, you know what, maybe they were right. Maybe I need to rethink what I have been learned to believe according to God's word. Or moreover, it's equally as important for all of us especially for some that are going away to college. How are we to filter and navigate what is truth? I, I'm hearing all of these things. They sound good. It makes sense. It, it just kind of feels right. Why wouldn't I ascribe to some of those things? So, so it's of utmost importance that we have something to say in response for at least our own sake to be able to know what we believe to be is true. And so we're going to briefly focus on three of these things. And our point number two is this. What are some of the fallacies that exist to validate homosexuality? And the first fallacy that carries the most weight in both secular and liberal religious arenas but is quite simply just not true, is this. I was born this way. I was born this way. And even within the church, God made me this way. But this argument has no biological foundation. And this statement, however, is so prevalent in the world that we live in. It is actually what leads the charge with the LGBT movement. But just by a show of hands, how many of us in this room, be honest, how many of us in this room heard about a study done in 2019, approximately five years ago, by a man by the name of Andrea Ganna? Anyone heard of the Ganna study? Okay, and that's not a surprise because studies like this are suppressed. (laughs) You're not going to hear about it. You might hear a little bit of a, a blip and you might hear about it from somebody, and then when you jump in and do a little bit of research on this, you find some pretty profound results. Now, Andrea Gannon Ganna was a, is a gay male, and he is a geneticist. He is a analytical and um, translational authority on genetics from none other than Harvard University. And his goal was to find a specific gene to basically be a marker for if a person was to be gay or heterosexual. And with a statistical population, which is of utmost importance as far as research is concerned, of 477,552 individuals, the results of this study were this. Human DNA cannot predict that if a person's sexual orientation will be gay Or straight. It has no more influence than 1% as far as these matters are concerned. In fact, it's actually 0.86%. Fascinating. But did we and have we heard about the fact that genetics has less than 1% to do with a person's sexual orientation? What we see is the exact opposite. And so this is very important because it is no longer a nature versus nurture conversation. It is no longer a biology versus environment, environmentalism uh, conversation. Nature and biology are now taken out of that argument, now taken out of the equation. And so what took place here with Andrea Ganna being a gay male he was trying to find something to substantiate a cause. But what he found actually in being true as a scientist still published the results, they found something to disprove the cause. And let's touch on this. Even if the results of that study did show that there was a genetic predisposition. Or the argument of environmental influences which there indeed are environmental influences that I'm sure that we've all been made aware of you know an absent or abusive father or father figure in one's life or just abuse and trauma heartbreakingly and tragically enough regardless there there is that in many many individuals lives or, or if you were to take aspects of a promiscuous or overbearing mother, all of these things have been shown that they do influence towards sexual deviancy in many ways with homosexuality and same-sex attraction being lumped into that as well. However, this is very important. These things, these factors, no biological factors, but these environmental Factors, regardless if they exist, they do not give us a license. They do not give us a disclaimer to participate in sinful behaviors. What do I mean by this? Well, our past does not substantiate our actions, meaning that I can't say because of what took place in my past. I can't say, now, therefore, I can validate being a murderer. I can validate being an alcoholic, which actually shows more genetic predisposition towards than sexual orientation. Or or I could validate my violent, raging temper. Or, Or I could substantiate reasons why I lie, cheat, steal, covet. The fact of the matter is this. We all have a sinful bent and propensity. There are going to be things in our life that circumstances fed into, uh, that some genetic predispositions uh, allowed us to have a propensity towards. However, these things do not give us a license. These things do not give us a free pass. As Christians, as blood-bought followers of Jesus, what are we called to do? We are called to deny ourselves. We are called to pick up our cross. We are called to mortify and put to death our sin, regardless of what that may be. As we'll step into Romans, you know, if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live you will have life temptation is not sinful but giving oneself over to these thoughts and taking action upon these sinful thoughts these are sinful christopher yuan who wrote this book called holy sexuality which i would commend to you who is a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. He is not a gay Christian, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But he stated these words, which are very profound. An influence is not a cause for sinful behavior. Your problems in your childhood did not make you a sinner. This is not biblical, but Freudian. Regrettably, we are sometimes too busy chasing after Sigmund Freud than chasing after Jesus Christ. What is the root cause for sinful behavior? What is the root cause for sinful behavior? Our sin nature. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. Amen. And the second fallacy that we would see is Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. And one more point. This was just texted me uh, to, to me this morning. In, in Illinois, my home state, <laughs> a category of an abused child will now, with this motion, fall under this. An abused child is one whose parents have redirected or stood against puberty blockers, hormone therapy, transgender surgeries, and abortions. If you think that we're living in a world that is going up and to the right, look around us. I know there's nothing new under the sun, but all we have to do is just see one additional step, descending step, this progression of perversion that we're now living in. But again, that that fallacy, the second one, that that many of us may be confronted with, specifically within uh, Christian circles within the church, is this. Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Jesus never spoke. He he never had specific words uh, that condemned homosexuality. And this, again, is simply not true. And the response to this is quite simple. Well, Jesus did speak against homosexuality because he spoke into what a biblical view of marriage is. In Matthew 19, 4, he quotes Genesis. Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. God's design for marriage is one man, one wife to become one flesh in one lifetime. Matthew 5.32 He speaks of the consequence of sexual immorality in marriage and also lists sexual immorality as a sin in Mark 7.21. And this word for sexual immorality being the word pornea, which is referring to any type of illicit sexual behavior, including homosexuality. And a second reason that we would be able to arrive at the fact if we ever heard the fallacy of Jesus never spoke against homosexuality is this. It is basically one of our, our core orthodoxies, the tenets in our faith as far as that Jesus Christ, the last time I looked, was still the second person of the Trinity. And his pre-existence in nature has been with God the Father and God the Spirit since the beginning of time. Since before time existed, he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We hear Christ in his incarnate form in the Gospels. But make no mistake, he has been there all along, including when this universe was created and the world and all of its statutes were spoken into existence, including the words that we see in Genesis and the words that we see In Leviticus. And so, another reason that we would ascribe Jesus speaking, um, not speaking against homosexuality, is the fact that we are speaking against, you know what I'm trying to say. This is the second, I did that first service too, but, but we're not to subdivide Scripture. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's so easy to to cherry pick passages, to look at specific verses or to find some contradictions that uh, lie there within. But we have to arrive at this fact that all scripture is what? God breathed, breathed out by God. Theo, noustos, Theo, God. Noustos being breathed out. All scripture is divinely inspired in Latin, divinitis inspirata. When Paul, Peter, John, James, and Jude wrote the epistles found in this book, they did so with full apostolic weight, with full apostolic authority, what is considered to be sin. And what is considered to be sin found in this book and found in the the epistles from the prophets are things that we are to abide by, ascribe to, and come under its authority. Ephesians 3.20, the household of God uh, was built on the foundation of the apostles and, and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And now the third fallacy that has gathered a great deal of steam specifically since 2020 is this, fallacy. It is okay to be a gay Christian. It is okay to be a gay Christian. What do we mean by this? Well, some may be familiar with an organization called revoice or side b which is i'm not going to go into the history of it out of the exodus movement side a side b war were developed uh, as far as gay christians are concerned and you could look into some of the history of those organizations but what this is it is a prime example of what we would see and hear and say oh that's okay that sounds good that makes sense i I could live with that. I could get behind that. But when you do a little bit of digging into this organization, it cannot be further from the truth, both literally and figuratively. These individuals would say that it's okay to be a gay Christian. As long as I'm remaining celibate, as long as I do not find myself in an intimate relationship with someone from the same gender, as long as essentially I'm not acting upon my sin, right? And, and so we would see this and, and say, this sounds okay, right? This is, this is good. But here's where we need to read between the lines. Here's where we need to split the, the hairs here and, and say this. We do not identify our sin with who we are in Christ. I, I would not qualify myself as a money-loving Christian, right? Yeah, I know. (laughs) I would not consider myself to be, it to be okay for me to be an adulterous Christian. I I would not think it would be okay to be an idolatrous idolatrous Christian or or an angry, hate-filled, revenge-filled Christian. So if we can't say those things, why is it okay if we are to say I'm a gay Christian. As a Christian, being gay is not an ontological state, with ontology just meaning a state of being. We do not find our identity in our sin, we find our identity in Jesus Christ. We find our identity as a son and a daughter. Of the great high king. We are blood bought believers. We are blood bought followers of Jesus Christ. That are called to fight. Contend. To mortify. To kill our sin. To wage war on these things on this side of eternity. Until we arrive in glory. No one gets a free pass in this area. Do we not think. That the God and creator of the universe, the God and creator of us is not capable of transformation, is not capable of full restoration, is not capable of redemption. Why would we put God in a box? Recognizing and identifying yourself with your sin and association with the word Christian is nullifying the power of the gospel. And this is where we need to land this plane. And I hope, I hope that we're able to just look at this snapshot of some things again so we would be able to have a defense, uh, so that we wouldn't be found flat footed on our heels and walk away from a discussion such as this with uh, bewilderment and, and wondering, but may we be grounded and rooted in the truth. This is so much more important than these things. This is the primary goal of all of this that we've talked about today. How do we share the gospel? How do we share the gospel in love and truth? How are we to do that? I mean, many of us have such a difficult time sharing the gospel as it is, much less someone who is dealing with same sex attraction or in a homosexual lifestyle how would i even remotely be able to have or initiate or step into a conversation as such well one thing that just immediately diffuses some of these lies as far as sharing the gospel is this recognition of it's all sin is it not all sin if there is and should be one thing that we've arrived at as far as Romans 1 is concerned, is coming face-to-face with our own moral depravity that, that exists in our own heart. And so how easily we could dismiss the sin and idolatry in our own hearts. And how easily we could pick up the stone, pick up the stone, And look at the sin and idolatry in other people's lives. Is this not the same hypocrisy that Christ strongly spoke against to the Pharisees? Is this not the same hypocrisy that just gives Christians such a great disdain from this world? Same thing I said last week. Silence and passivity never won anyone over to Christ. But you know what did not win anyone over to Christ either? Is hate filled, self righteous, bludgeoning rhetoric. And so knowing these things is of great importance. How are we to share the gospel? Well, it's the same as sharing the gospel with anyone else. How are we to speak? into or over sin issues in individuals' lives, well, the same way that we would do that with anyone else, where we must arrive at the fact that you and I are sinners in need of grace and all we're doing with the friend, with the family member, with the coworker, with the classmate, with the person that is near and dear to your heart. All that we're doing is this, telling one beggar to another beggar on where to find the bread, where to find the truth, where to find life, where to find life abundantly, where to find the truth that will set those free. We have been called to boldly share the gospel of Jesus Christ With all of those that are in desperate need of that, we do not shy away from the truth. We do not shy away from divine appointments, divine relationships that the Lord has called you and I to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ into the darkest of places. May we not put God in a box? May we not think that anyone is out of the realm of God's transformative, redemptive power. We have the words of life that can bring people out of darkness, eternal darkness, and into the eternal, marvelous light. And may we have the boldness to know the truth so that we may be able to share the truth. And may we have the boldness to step into these conversations, to step into these relationships. Vodi Bachman, when sharing a story about ministering and sharing the gospel to a lesbian teenager, he walked away with her opening up about her lifelong list of struggles. He arrived at this and said, this it would take no more grace no more grace for god to save her no more grace than for god to save me and if you're here today may we not hold this approach that my sin is so much better than their sin we all are sinners in need of grace, known as righteous, no, not one. We stand before an almighty, holy God condemned. It is only through the saving grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which we may be found before God Almighty justified. So wherever we're at in our life today, you may be struggling with this specific area in your life. You may be struggling with a whole litany of other areas of your life. May we all find ourselves at the same place, on the same footing, at the foot of the cross, saying, Lord, I need you. I so desperately need you. May we all find areas in our life to repent over and to hold fast to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And just to conclude this, since we're talking about so much culture today, Jesus Christ does not get us. Jesus Christ saves us. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for our sins. When Jesus spoke to the woman who had been caught in adultery in John 8, 10, and 11, he states this, woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Where are all those people that were just here holding the rocks? She said, no one, Lord. She said, they're all gone. No one, Lord. And Jesus said these words, neither Do I condemn you? But these are the words that Jesus leaves us with as well. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, may we continually, always rejoice and the beautiful gift of salvation that you have given us. And if there are those in this room that have not received this gift, may you make it clear and abundant to them that our life is to be found in you. God, may you save people. God, may... Individuals in our lives that we specifically talked about today, may we identify them by name. May we have the boldness and the fortitude to know the truth, but may that truth be conveyed in love and through the love of you, Jesus Christ. May you save them. And God, allow us to be lovers of the truth. In a world which we will face and do face persecution, God, it is and should not come as a surprise. Lord, keep us close to you. We look to you and glorify your name as we do that in song, recognizing that you, Jesus Christ, you paid it all.